Good afternoon. Welcome to Commissioner Conversation uh, with Publishers, uh, with a slight addendum to with publishers and an agent. Uh, we are delighted to be saved by Claire Wilson, who has come from very short notice, etc., on the basis that we had a publisher drop out um, in the middle of last week because he had a book to publish, which is outrageous. Um, but no, he had to get it to the printers uh, by today, otherwise he was in deep trouble. So unfortunately, uh, David from Scholastic couldn't be with us. However, I think Claire's going to provide us with with um, some fascinating insight into somebody who does sell into publishers, who understands what they're looking for, what they need, um, albeit she's coming at it from an author perspective, etc. She understands what I think an awful lot of us um, in the room would like to know about how um, publishers engage with content and what gets them excited. Um, so I would like, first of all, for our panelists to uh, briefly introduce themselves, their role within their company, and give you a couple of facts maybe about the company that they work for, if you didn't know them. Uh, we'll start at the end with Richard Hay. Hi, I'm Rich. I work for Penguin Random House. Um, my job is kind of twofold. I work across our entire children's portfolio, uh, majority on the licensed publishing side, so taking uh, IP from producers or creatives and then working with the team to turn that into books. So my job is to go out and, f and find that content and bring that in. We publish um, across the whole age range from sort of really young kids all the way up to teen teenagers, so probably Doctor Who at the oldest end and uh, down in preschool we publish Peppa Pig. We're just launching uh, the Fairchester, we're, we're just launching Hey Dougie as well, we're both CBB shows. Um, we also have another part to our business which is um, in IP development or IP ownership and exploiting rights that we have. So for example, the Peter Rabbit um, TV which we co-produced but also more recently uh, the TV show Puffin Rock, which has just gone on Nick Jr., which actually uh, we saw for the first time at CMC three years ago. We invested in development and we've helped co-produce that and bring that f out into market. Um, we have uh, just we have three main imprints, which is Ladybird, um, Puffin and Penguin. Uh, we're very lucky because uh, our, our imprints kind of resonate with the consumers and it's kind of rare for an imprint to actually do that. Uh, and we publish into those across those different age ranges. Brilliant. Thank you. Karen. Um, I'm Karen Boyle, I'm publisher at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, which is part of the Hachette Children's Group. Um, Hachette Children's Group, I think, is the fourth biggest publisher in the UK and covers five trade imprints. Um, my imprint is less than two years old, so we're the baby of the group. We're publishing about 50 books a year, including Frankie's Magic Football, written by the footballer Frank Lampard. Um, we've also had success with some adult authors writing their first children's novels, so Jenny Colgan. Um, we published some licensed projects called Ever After High and Monster High that have done really well. But also real old school publishing, so working with people like Claire, commissioning authors who've written fantastic novels. Um, and I come from an IP background in that I was head of editorial at a book packager called Working Partners. So part of my brief is to develop IP and work with new partners. But before we go on, can you give people um, a bit of a broader view of what the Hachette Group is, how big it is, because it's not always, we're not, I don't think everybody knows quite um, how extensive. I mean, the whole of Hachette is absolutely massive and, and owns publishers like Virago, Little Brown, um, six children's publishers, um, and the children's publishers are Little Brown Books for Young Readers, Orion, Orchard, Hodder, um, and Franklin Watson, Wayland, and Orion Children's Books. And its reach outside of the UK is... Um, well, we have Little Brown US, we have, it's, we have Hachette in France, which owns the company. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty worldwide reach. It's a big company. It is a big company. And lastly, Claire. So, I'm Claire Wilson. I work at Rogers, Coleridge and White as the head of the children's department. Um, RCW is one of the major literary agencies. We have a long history of book to film and TV adaptations from 
Atonement to Frank Cultural Voice to Goodnight Mr. Tom. Um, John originally asked us to think of things that might not be known about our companies and the thing that came to mind about RCW and about most literary agencies is that we do read everything that lands on our desk. I think there's often a perception that it's a really closed world and that no one's looking for new voices or new ideas and we very much are and always will be because that's the heart of the company that we are running. It's, um, it's the creativity that comes from, from authors and from the people who generate IP. Okay, that's very heartening to know. Um, so the thrust of the session is a question as to, in terms of uh, the world of sort of children's media, um, uh, dominated by sort of primarily uh, sort of um, television and sort of like publishing, is in the future or now or at what point could we get to the point where um, ideas coming from non-authors um, are actively welcomed and sought out by the publishing industry with a view that that idea that the creative community at CMC and its mass actually the idea begins life as a book and I wanted to sort of explore that in a sense of how close the mediums of television and publishing are uh, are together how they both interact with story and character and narrative etc are are they the same or are the fundamental differences that people don't necessarily appreciate and hopefully we can sort of like tease those out so the big question I probably it's a bit of a gimme for Richard etc how open are Penguin to dealing with sort of um, uh, essentially non-author creators in terms of people who will pitch you an idea for a book and then what would be the process of engagement within that I mean, I think, you know, we, we're definitely open for ideas. I think I, I'd be surprised if anybody says that they're not, really. I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, t when we're looking for, for new projects all the time. I mean, I think, you know, from a publishing side, it's obviously more traditional for there to be a, a manuscript written complete and or at least partially done so that it can be assessed because if it's going to live in the book world and that's its kind of main medium or it's, a, it's only medium to start with, it needs to be able to prove itself in that medium. Um, but I think we, you know, we don't, we do take on ideas that come from, you know, concepts and, and ideas. I can see um, the mum's creative there. They created a, a project called um, there they are, uh, How You Be the Magical Vet, which actually, again, we saw here for the first time, and, and we and we picked that up and we published and we published that and we've worked with them to bring a writer to it and we've sold that in six or seven languages now and we're looking at you know where, where that goes next. So I think it, it does happen. I think it's probably it's more it's more common definitely for there to be a you know, a, a written, a fully written book than, than, just a, than just an idea. Okay, we'll hold it there and come back to some su supplementary questions. Karen, within the sort of the Hachette empire, as much as you can tell, or within your bit, um, how common is it for somebody who's basically not an author uh, to be coming in and pitching you an idea? And do you know what to do with it when you hear that idea, bearing in mind that if it's coming possibly from this community and they're not an author, there isn't going to be the first three chapters or there isn't a sort of like a manuscript there? Yeah. Um, well, we have somebody at Hachette called Damien Horner, who's a brand development manager, I believe. And a part of his role is, is putting publishers in touch with people who are coming from a non-publishing background. And he's put me in touch with a few people. Um, and it's been really interesting. And it, and it can be anybody from an individual with an idea to a bigger organisation. Um, the, the, the most important part of that process for me um, is to have a nutshell of an idea that's intriguing. But beyond that, I would say that 95% of the process is can I work with these people? So it's really important to meet meet with people and see if you connect creatively, um, just on a human level, whether you feel that there's flexibility around brainstorming ideas. Um, so it's definitely there and, and happening, but I think it's just finding the right, part, right partners is really important. Okay. 
Um, let's pick up on the fact that therefore there is an openness in terms of receiving those ideas. Is it naive of anybody who's a non-author, uh, digital, whatever it is, TV company, etc., to um, come in without actually having done the creative work, i.e. some writing sample from a writer, which they would never do if they were pitching a TV series to a broadcaster. They would automatically know mm -hmm. that at some point there needed to be a script, etc. Is it actually uh, sort of beholden on the non-author, whoever that is, now or going forward to start actually stepping up to what your game is with the expectation of some writing? Richard? Uh, well, I mean, I think it. I, I think it depends. I mean, I think it, it depends on the on the idea. And I'm not trying to be sort of no, no, like well, you know. But I mean, I think if if the idea is that it is going to be a book series and you want it to be a book series, it's not. We're going to make an animation and we want now, the book. What I'm talking about is they want it to be a book first. Anybody yeah. who's interested to be going, got a great idea for whatever reasons they're going. Yeah. I want to start this as a book. I'm a creative company person, individual. I mean, I I, well, I think I think at the very at the very least you need to if you haven't done the writing, you need to have figured out what's going to happen, how it's going to work, what the characters are. All the work that you would, I guess, you'd be doing if you were pitching to TV. I you know you you have to be able to prove that the world and the characters are engaging, that they work, that it's something that kids want to want want to have in whichever form that it is, and then how what the age target is that you think it is, how that's gonna how that's gonna live um, on the page. And I think we can we can always sort of you know look to work with people and see where where we can attach writers um, if the idea is really really strong and really really good and really well thought out. But I think. You know, obviously, as is to the point, it is obviously more common for publishers to acquire from from a manuscript. Sure, but it's not it's not the only way that we acquire. Uh, Karen, same uh, similar sort of thrust of questioning. If the um, the non-author is um, coming in armed now because they realise that actually this is what they need some sort of like writing, how what what. Uh, how likely is it that they could make a mistake? You go, oh my god, I really love the idea. I'm building a fantastic relationship with somebody, and they go, yeah. And we got X to do the writing. At which point you go, oh, right. <laughs> In that um, they won't necessarily know the currency of the of the writer, as it were, and how that plays with you. Because actually, a lot of people would be moving into a new field, etc. Is there a danger that actually they should be they in picking that writer to, to give you what you want? They picked the wrong guy or the wrong girl. Um, in terms of how you're going to react to the pitch? Um, I think if, if it's a really strong concept that they've just picked the wrong writer, but there's a conversation to be had around that diplomatically, which is we really like the idea, can we rethink about who the writer is on it? Um, and I, th I, think, I think a really important part of the process is people respecting each other's expertise. So if somebody's coming to me with no writing sample but a strong idea and an expertise in their field be it apps or whatever it is then I don't really mind that I think sometimes there's a danger in telling publishers how to be publishers and that's the kind of thing that would that might slightly shut a door in in my head in that well I'm bringing loads of expertise to this so let me bring something to the table um, mainly you know, a strong thing for me is just seeing a, w a willingness to engage and a flexibility and the times that conversations that my head is kind of shut on a conversation is when I'm trying to play with ideas with somebody and, and you keep hearing no but, no but and they're just, they're, they're just not showing that manoeuvrability and will willingness to engage and that's what makes me pause where I think I'm not sure this person ever actually wants to hear anything that I'm saying to help develop this. And if you haven't got that, you're in trouble, because that's what you need. Right, okay. So let's come to you, Claire, in terms of this hypothetical scenario, 
that um, uh, the TV company or the non-author, as we're going to call them, etc., wants to go in armed uh, with a writing sample, etc. Mm. If somebody sort of approached you and said, look, this is the idea that we've got, we are looking to um, start it as a book and this is our passion, this is belief, and this is what our strategy is for mm. how we'd like to see this sort of grow as a property. How do you and then the writers that you represent respond to essentially what in TV world we would call service work? Because clearly it's not an author-driven property, it's coming mm. in from an outside source. What's? I think that's actually not something that's very new um, coming at it from that side so representing authors who will write for a specific project writers for hire almost that's something that's that's been done for for a long time and that's something that agents have been involved with for a long time too to ensure that those writers get the right level of reward for their involvement with the project regardless of whether they originated it or not um, coming at it from the other angle so looking at representing people who came up with the idea and who originated the IP, that would be something new, but I do think it's something that there is room for us to be thinking about. Um, I think that being a fantastic TV writer or a digital company, someone who can come up with the ideas that publishers are going to want, doesn't mean you necessarily have the expertise to know how much you should be paid for it or how your contract should be structured, and that's something that an agent would be very comfortable dealing with. So. So it's a question of flipping the way that we currently work and adding the reverse direction so that we are not only looking after writers for hire, but also the people whose ideas those writers are working on. First of the spontaneous questions, which I said would come up. So picking up on that, so the guys from the non-author company, etc., walk through the door, etc., they're making a pitch to you and you go, it's a really good idea. I really like it. I've got just the writer for you. Mm. Is there any point where your brain would go and I know who to sell it to, because I know actually this is just the kind of thing that they're looking for, that you would ever actually then say that to the company and say, guys, would you be interested? Because clearly I know a whole lot more about the publishing world than you do. I've got all of the contacts, etc. because you haven't got all the contacts. You know Richard and Karen because you went to CMC, but trust me, there's a whole lot more people out there. Um, mm. Is that a viable proposition for an agent, therefore, to be sort of brokering what we're talking, you know, this new kind of partnership? I think what's difficult about looking after both sites is that then I would effectively become a packager, which isn't really my role. Um, That's going to be a nice link in. Go on, carry on. <laughs> Just for you. So I think what I would be more comfortable doing is representing either the writer or the originator, and then I can represent that, that entity uh, wholeheartedly and without any other considerations or compromise. I think if I'm trying to represent both sides, I might be finding myself in a conflict of interest. Um, so I, I can't envision myself packaging projects because that's just a whole different job. But if someone came to me with a brilliant idea and I knew the perfect publisher, then the fact that there wasn't a writer involved certainly wouldn't hold me back from wanting to be involved. Okay, interesting. We will come on to the, the packaging bit sort of later. I'd like to explore whether um, or to what extent both of the, the, the television, which is a medium I'm focusing on mainly, and publishing, story, we create story-based product. I'm sure that's not a great word to use with publishers or agents, etc., but it is a story-based product that we're creating. Richard, do you think that, while we have that in common, that the two mediums look at stories in very different ways? Um, and actually, that's something that um, maybe the, the, the non-author side of the equation doesn't necessarily appreciate the way that a, a publisher approaches story and thinks about it. Uh, I think... I think that is, I, we're looking often for the same type of things. We might approach it in slightly different ways, but I think what, you know, everyone will say this, and, and people have probably heard it 
be repeated over and over again by broadcasters and everybody but it's the it's the world it's the stories it's the characters that both mediums are really looking for and, and, and trying to develop and how that comes to life I mean I think there, there's different I mean there's just certain differences between the way that TV content is delivered and book content it's often that if you're making 52 seven minute episodes you wouldn't generally release a series of 52 books to accompany that and turn every single episode into a thing I mean I think there's obviously certain differences just from budgety things related to TV I mean everything that you create if you're creating animation has to be animated from a book perspective you can obviously go to space and then go underwater if you want because the cost is basically putting it on, onto the page so your world can be larger because you're not constrained by the budgets of actually making that and obviously from a TV side generally you have especially at the preschool side definitely at the preschool side you kind of have to go back to the beginning at the end because it's not going to necessarily be watched in order um, so you know you have to go back to the the norms of the show so whatever you, you start with as your characters you kind of have to end on the preschool side in, in the same way so that it can be watched in any order um, and obviously from from a series of pub, from books you don't have to you don't have to end and then go back to the beginning okay um, just to let the audience know if you've got um, questions we're going to be picking up questions as we go through so have a think if you've got a question because I'll come to you sort of like shortly if you're interested on that point of the that the 52 episodes doesn't make um, 52 books that's not how the publishers would sort of like roll it out um, in reality there's a, there's dozens if not hundreds of TV series that have 52 episodes and none of them ever appear as books so clearly there's a there's a there's a, a big mismatch in certain cases why is it not a given that somebody a producer or somebody who's got a massive volume of things and there's not one story that could be taken out of that and turned into a book Karen why why isn't there such a strong owner? <laughs> you, you didn't want that question, did you? Uh, well, I mean, uh, even if you're, as a, just a, you might not know all the TV series, but you watch TV. I mean, you've seen it, etc. You know, you're not going there. Oh my God, that series! I could turn that into a book. I could turn that. There's a massive resource out there that you go and yeah. cherry pick. It just doesn't happen. So there's something going. There's something different for me in terms of attitude to story or what you need out of a story that TV has got that isn't exciting you? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it just, just comes down to really, really practical things. So in, in my short experience at Hachette, um, TV schedules seem to work really up to the last minute. And you might not know when something's being broadcast until weeks before, in advance, whereas the publishing process is is much longer than that and you know in an ideal world you'd have 12 to 18 months to plan publication so often sometimes when the conversations are happening for from a publishing perspective you just don't have time to publish the books in time to coincide with the tv going out and if you can't publish at the same time then your you know your, your levels of exposure aren't quite matching so that can be a really practical answer and sometimes there are different fashions in the two mediums so you know, I've had conversations with people while we're publishing something and, and they'll say, oh, TV isn't really doing that at the moment and, and vice versa. Um, and they're, they're different experiences in that, in that TV can be a passive experience. And I don't mean that in a denigrative way, but you, can, you kind of sit back and soak it up, whereas the book reading experience is much more immersive. And so sometimes that can become a barrier. Um, so, I mean, there can be lots of reasons why things just don't quite connect. Sometimes it can be down to really practical things like when is the TV going out? And if it's going at a time where children are seeing it but parents are, then you might not have the right level of recognition. So, you know, the TV isn't necessarily helping to sell the books. I mean, I, I, just on your, on that, just to add to that last one, I think as well, there's, 
not everything not everything should translate and I think there's maybe sometimes a, a misconception that while it's on TV therefore it could be a toy and it can be and it can be books and in the same way that not every one of our book series is right for a TV show like you know not all of our book not all of the books we publish should be a film or should be a TV show and I think it's exactly the same there, there, are, there are mediums and, and they exist in their mediums it doesn't mean they should exist in other mediums and I think there's a so sometimes people think, well, I've, this, I, I've got a book here, so it should be a TV show, or I've got a TV show, therefore there should be books related to it. I mean, I think on that, you know, there's, there's only a certain element of our business that is focusing on taking TV show content and turning that into books. A lot of our business is about publishing, publishing those books, whether they're fiction or picture books, and not, not, taking, not taking it all from TV, that's the creative from the book side. And a lot of it is driven by retail from the TV side. I mean, I think that to get a successful... TV show tie-in program off the ground you really need to have retail buy-in and you need to have a, the other licensing and merchandising normally comes with that so you know where we publish across a lot of our TV brands so things like Peppa Pig there's a lot of other Peppa Pig product in the market that you can get there's there's toys and the people that look after that are in Asda and Tesco and having those conversations so that you can get retail space so I think there's it's not there's 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 probably plenty of shows that could translate but are not being because they also need to have other things it's not you I don't think you can just take it and then go this should be a book and nothing else there's often other levers that you need to be able to pull okay that's a good point and I will freely confess to um a degree of TV arrogance because I know from experience that not every single book will turn into sort of TV series you know that's mm. sort of like a given yeah. But I, I've never applied that to my own medium to think not every TV series should become a book. I've always automatically assumed that you'd be able to do that. So I confess to TV arrogance. Um, let's explore the stages of um, how... Oh, beg your pardon, a question. Sir, thank you. Could you wait for the mic, please? Say your name and where you're uh, from. Peter from Creative Conspiracy in uh, Ghent, Belgium. Um, we had a successful TV series uh, that uh, aired on uh, Public Broadcaster. And we had a book publisher, Lanou, um, who signed up before we were on TV. Yeah. And they gave their commitment for them. It was about content. Yeah. And they saw the books not as an extension of the TV show, but as something that would be launched pretty much together with the TV show. Yeah. And then they looked at it as content rather than merchandise. So what's your view on that? I mean, that's, I mean I, I'm not suggesting that you merch. I mean, we signed up. I mean, I, I, I signed up to the Clangers Publishing, which we'll be launching this year. I signed up to that 18 months ago before they even started making the animation based on a bit of paper and diagrams that they showed there, there and then. So we're absolutely, we've never, everything, every show we sign up to, we sign up probably a year before it goes on air, at least, because we need that. We need a year development time to get the books right and work with the creators on getting the right extension in, into that property. But I think you, ha you, know, you have to believe that it can live in, in that medium. So that I, I don't know, but they might, you, know, you can see certain things exist better as books than other things, and not every TV show said can exist. So I think you do need to buy into it creatively, but you also need to be aware that if you're going into, if you're going into Asda or Tesco's or WH Smith, to sell it as a, as a business and it's based on a TV show, one of the questions they will ask is what else, whatever collateral is there going to be in the market, what else is going on, what is the marketing that's going behind it, what slot has it got? And I think that that is definitely the question you will get from a retail perspective. But you, yeah, we, we absolutely, you know, we, we, we buy at least a year before. Normally, whilst it's in production, definitely, normally there might be an episode or a couple of episodes or a Bible or an animatic, we're buying at that stage rather than waiting for it to be finished. We're on questions, gentlemen in the hat. 
Uh, my name is Jonathan from a company, tech company called Tungsten, but I'm talking to you as a first-time author. Um, so the question I wanted to ask you was that when somebody comes to you with a manuscript, um, what I wanted to know really was uh, if you see something that you think, especially as a first-time author, is a great idea and a good story but not perfectly finished, mm. so what would, you, what would your response to you? Do, you? do you prefer to get things, do you get enough things that are perfectly formed within the genres that you know or is there still work where you would take things and then involve an editor and say, oh, I found the right person to work with to turn this into a, uh, a great work? I think that's definitely a big part of being an agent. I think we're the kind of first filter and um, and no one can edit themselves. No one can turn in a perfect first draft and, and that's what we're there for, to spot potential even in its very earliest stages and work with the author um, to get it to a a draft where someone like Karen would be able to envision editing it to a 12 to 18 month schedule. So I, we we do that very first stage of polishing a book up. And we don't get into the tiniest details. We don't um, try and make it perfect because then you would end up narrowing your options rather than um, increasing them. But we do very much look for look for raw talent, whatever form it might reach us in. Just pick up how, what kind of, um so the manuscript comes in, etc. You know there's something there. How sort of forensic do you get in terms of the polish? I mean, is it um, is it kind of like a structural thing that you know you can sort of ultimately sort of fix, and that's too long, and this, that, and the other, mm. or actually saying you know there's something about your style which is getting me, but actually I think you need to do X, Y, and Z, or you need to think about how much can you give a guide, how much will you get involved, because actually it becomes a creative process rather than an enabling mm. process. I think it depends on the book and on the project. Um, I don't think it's an agent's role to get into the really specific um, edits and change an author's style or voice. I think those need to be intrinsic and, and need to come from the heart. Um, so, so really, it would be the bigger sweeping structural stuff that we would look at to, to turn a book with an interesting core or an interesting voice into a viable project that a publisher could feel confident about investing in. Um, but that's not to say that we wouldn't spend a long time discussing the minor details too if an author needed that kind of support. That's, um, that's something that we would really tailor to the project and, and every author likes to work differently. Karen, do you want to pick up on that? I mean, would you get involved? I mean, say it's, a, say it's come to the publisher rather than to the agent. You're seeing a similar thing to sort of like Claire. Do you roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and start, you know, handing out sort of like notes? Or is that, again, not your job? Um, well, I'm an editor, so it definitely is my job. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't we're know all how in dirty, trouble. I don't know, it, I, I'm sure we're interested to know how dirty a publishing editor their hands get. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room who've edited scripts, etc., or got involved. And actually, I'll own up, and writers hate it. You rewrite certain stuff that you don't like. And actually, it's a given in the TV industry that if the script isn't being sort of right from the writer, there's somebody in the process who will end up fixing it the way that they want it. Do you dare to do that? With I absolutely do dare to do that. <laughs> and I would encourage every author to embrace that process. <laughs> <laughs> um, as Claire said, it really varies from project to project. And some manuscripts will come in and they barely need touching. And you should respect that. And other manuscripts... Um, 
have huge potential but um, maybe need help and guidance and so it, it varies and one process isn't superior to the other it's just what suits that manuscript and that author but yeah I think it's really important to always be editorially involved okay. as Claire said as an author you're, you're so close to the work that you just need another pair of eyes um, and a pair of eyes that kind of is, is commercially aware as well okay any more questions before we move on? Oh, gentleman at the front, yeah. My name's Kieran. I'm a 3D animator and uh, first-time author also, or interested in becoming one. I uh, uh, worked on creating a sales bible for an animation series, thinking of my project as an animation series. And as I was doing that, I was really intrigued about rather instead going the book route first so it would allow me to really explore this world I had envisioned and I'm just wondering what what uh, what would I need to provide to approach uh, you as a first-time author I mean you know I have the sales Bible has some of my voice in there but it, it, you know I, I could expand on that but what what would I need to do to uh, to start a conversation at, at the right point. Um, it depends what to. sort of book it is. Is it a novel or a young... It's a novel. A novel? You yeah. would need to have a synopsis and three chapters, okay. um, but you should also have the rest of the book up your sleeve because yeah. if an agent <laughs> likes it, they're going to come back and ask for that. Uh -huh. um, but it's interesting that you should say that that's how the project came about because actually one of my more recent deals was with Karen for a book by a film producer who started out writing a proposal for a film and um, along the way realised that he'd written a book and um, a quite brilliant one which is going to be published by Hachette. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, um, it's an interesting route to finding, to finding your voice to, to start with the idea and the characters and the story and then realise that actually you want to be the one that creates that entire world and, and the people within it. And what, what, what is the kind of time turnaround from that initial conversation of the the treatment and the chapters to, you know, this a bigger conversation where where the work gets underway with a publisher or yeah, or um, well yeah in the so you can expect to uh, or or also with the aid, with an agent the, the how fast can you get back to him and say yeah it's a great show I want to buy it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or start work immediately you know <laughs> <laughs> finish it quick yeah sell it tomorrow. It depends on luck and timing. Um, I'd like to say I reply to everything very quickly. I don't always. Um, I've usually replied to people within about six weeks or so. Um, but if something happens to catch my eye, I might reply straight away. Um, we do get huge numbers, um, so it all depends on, on what else is going on. And then from a point of signing with an agent, you would um, expect to work through some edits. Um, again, that might be for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, and then from signing a contract, I'd guess the average time between that and having a published book in your hand is around about 18 months. Okay. Uh, question from Michael, and then we can come back to the debate. Um, Michael from Magic Light Pictures. Uh, I was intrigued by the, the earlier discussion about the um, uh, editor-author relationship, and I wanted to ask, um, actually, uh, of Richard in relationship to Puffin Rock in this sort of new world where publishers are getting involved in the audiovisual process and where you got involved at development stage, um, were you editorially very hands-on also with the audiovisual side of the Puffin Rock enterprise and how that worked? 
Okay, so from a from a sort of a storytelling perspective, we've we've been quite we've looked at every single premise. We have a t an internal team that we've put on the project. Um, from the editorial side, myself and, and one other person that has read every single premise, every single draft of every single script. We went to the the writers' meetings. We've got, we have sort of structure and we look at how, how we want the show to run and we work across that and I think that from a publishing side I think that the storytelling and the, and the world building and, and character development is actually kind of what we always have done and what we do so I feel like that's where we've added the most value I suppose from the visual side of that I mean Cartoon Saloon have had now had two Oscar nominations for their for their films. We were not telling them how to how to animate the show. We uh, we you know we were very much sort of like this is your this is your sphere of expertise. This is where we can add value. I mean when we we're talking about developing new characters, we were we were talking about the look of the characters and we'd sort of we'd give advice on that. But we we weren't sort of telling them what animation program to use or what animators they should hire or anything like that. But we were very involved across the story um, the story perspective of the scripting. Okay, thank you. All right, coming back to um, uh, the selling procedure, and then we're going to very rapidly discover how quickly you can get a book coming out the other end. Claire, we're working in, in a sort of a fictional situation um, that you have somehow magically got a property that's come from sort of like a non-author, you're engaged, etc., and it turns out to be maybe this guy who did come from the TV world but suddenly has found his voice and it's come out like that. Mm. How do you go about... Um, selling that into to Karen for example etc what kind of uh, picture are you painting with your words what are you telling her about it in terms of that sort of is selling and this is going to be a great book because well I think it's the same whether I have an author attached or not essentially the first conversation is me trying to convince an editor that this idea is the one that they want to look at above the other ten they've been sent that day so it starts with a phone call um, where I, I give a pitch and I would do that in the same way for a book or for an idea just trying to convey to the editor why I'm so excited about a property what makes it special how it fits into the context of the market in a way that will make them feel confident that it's the book they're going to be able to lead with in the next year. Um, do you, are you going to tell her the story? Do you need that elevator pitch like it's in a movie? That's kind is of it a X versus Y? Is it like Jaws in Space gets Alien? You know, what, <laughs> how do you, how do you pitch a publisher? You think you should send me that idea? Cause <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I think, depends on the agent. I don't tend to send synopses and, and tell the whole story because I think um, for a, a fiction project where the text exists, what I want to do is get people excited enough about it to read it and then fall into that world and discover the story in the way that a first-time reader will. Um, so I think... So you're not going to tell her the ending then? No, I don't. But oh, wow, OK. sometimes annoys people, so then I do. It depends <laughs> on the situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think generally what I want is to allow people to get really excited about a project and read it and make it their own um, rather than sit down and detail every last plot point until they're, they're not... Emily's a bit excited about actually discovering it for themselves. Um, so I do, I do tend to lead with a, an elevator pitch and a something versus something because it's just such an easy shorthand um, and it's one that we can all work with when it comes to passing on to, to the sales team and then on to retailers. Um, so having that really clear core that you can convey again and again very quickly is hugely important and I think that's something that needs to be at the heart of the book not just the pitch, I think you need to know what it is that you're creating and where it fits um, but I think the 
process of getting a publisher excited about a project is really about conveying passion and excitement and enthusiasm that creates the emotional connection <coughs> and brings them on board from the earliest stage and, and makes them excited about learning more. Okay, so Karen, Claire's done her job and you're excited. Okay, <laughs> you're now absolutely gagging to read it. Um, We'll fast forward through the bit because Claire's done such a good job. Actually, the, the work delivers on the promise. Yeah. Right? So it's now in the system. Uh, you basically told Claire, don't go anywhere else. We're going to do this. All right. <laughs> I would what never happens, tell Claire. <laughs> what, happens, what happens inside Hachette for <laughs> you to actually be able to turn this into a book? Who do you pitch to? What team have to sign off on it? What's the process? We'll assume that the writing is going to be delivered, etc. Yeah. I want to know what the internal sign-off, etc., is, how that works within a publisher to say, we are going to green light this, which means Claire can tell her writer, go finish the book. It's basically a lot more internal pitching. So I have to say, um, any agent who can write a fantastic pitch email, as Claire does, um, I tend to love as a publisher. Because it makes it you very... just hit forward. I hit <laughs> copy and paste. <laughs> Um, so I, I then, so if I like it, I share it with my editorial team and ask them to read. And if if they all like it, um, we then take it forwards to what's called an acquisition meeting, and that's when I need to get buy-in from my sales director, publicity and marketing, possibly rights if we're looking to to offer on rights. Um, and it's a very, very, very delicate process. Um, Why is it a delicate process? Because I want people to say no, and they may be looking... Oh, oh no, I want people to say no! (laughs) I'm I'm still learning this process. (laughs) This could be why you haven't published very many books, basically. (laughs) I want people to say yes, and in a way they're looking for other reasons why they want to say no, in that they're really testing the the kind of quality of the project and, and whether or not we should sign up to it. So um, Okay, so they're in sales, so they're risk averse, they want something that's a slam dunk, you're the creative side, you're pitching the sort of like strong idea. So do you, you have to do your own internal sort of like sell? And is your rights team looking at it from a UK perspective or have you got is does it have to be an international property for people to buy in? So if if I wanted the rights team to buy in then yes that we need to be looking at not necessarily worldwide appeal but certainly a key market appeal so America is an obvious one um, Germany China lots of different We're assuming here that Claire's going to let you have these rights Exactly so, we'll skip over that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes from a rights perspective it's it's looking for potential international appeal but that's that's not the be all and end all of every project you know I've I've published novels that are very British and I am happy to embrace that because they're wonderful and deserving novels that deserve to be out there but um so yes I'll move move it forward to an acquisition meeting okay and then um is it will they read it or did you get the top line pitch? You know, how engaged are they in the product? I mean, okay, these are sales guys, obviously sort of, are they gonna drill down in the same way to get the emotional connection? Or is it down to you very much to tell them why they're gonna be able to sell this and why it's amazing? I think it's down to me. I'd, I'd love to say that our sales director is reading every single manuscript that goes to an acquisition meeting, but I know that's not the case. And it would be naive of me to think that that's the case. So yeah, p- p- one of the subtle nuances of preparing for an acquisition meeting is going and sitting down with a sales director talking to him about the manuscript, helping him understand it, 
even if it's only read part of the manuscript. Right, okay. Richard, does this all resonate with you at Penguin? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I imagine probably every publisher has a similar sort of thing. It, it, there's, there's an acquisition meeting. Um, you know, you, you, get buy, you try and get buy-in from the key people prior to the meeting and you start and that's when you also start I mean that's when the idea gets really tested as well and it's really it's a really useful way of just checking that everybody else is on board and gets the concept and then that's also when you'll start then to think about what the offer um, what the offer looks like whether you want world rights or whatever rights you want and, and what the value might be and you'll discuss what the start to discuss the position um, you want to take okay I'm interested and it doesn't necessarily work in or happen in the world of sort of like television is that that you mentioned that you had your marketing department there how Richard for you how powerful are your marketing department in terms of influencing that decision because in TV the only marketing we do is we market to you know to the trade we don't you know we don't worry about our consumers how are we can sell it because once the broadcaster's got it effectively yeah. they're doing that job for us so for you guys marketing how important is it is in the yeah, I, no yeah I think marketing PR is incredibly important and I, you know and they have to they have to buy in and also I mean I think that you know there's a there's an there's not an infinite marketing and PR budget for for publishers so we need to be able to know that if we're going to back something we're going to be able to get behind it and, and support it in the way it needs and I think you know especially and if you're thinking of a fictional picture book side I think you know a lot of the way they, they're, they're built is grassroots and that's PR driven school events and events and going out and kind of and doing all that so I think that they absolutely need to be engaged I mean I think that every publisher should be editorially driven in a sense that they're the ones that, that the job of, of, of editorial people you know people that are acquiring content is to sort of find what's great content but I think you do definitely need to have buy-in from sales and marketing because you're going you'd be fighting an uphill battle otherwise I think when, when you go the next two years before anything gets published okay and so effectively if that team says yes you can then come back to Claire and say we're in and then you just thrash out the commercial terms and job's done <laughs> and the job starts <laughs> Um, at least it's got a green. It's got a green light, assuming yeah. Claire will agree to your terms. Yes, I mean that, that's that, that's a very simple. Yeah, way it's a very simplistic sort of yes, view, etc. But yes, hopefully, provide yes. some sort of insight. Um, break for questions if there are any. Oh, gentleman at the front, Mr. Lytton, I believe. Hello. Okay. Um, just had a couple of questions. Really, going back, I guess a little bit. Um, would you always advise a new author, stroke creator, stroke whatever it happened to be? Uh, newbie to to always have an agent always go into an agent before they went to a publisher and as um, publishers um, would you generally always look more kindly or is it more naturally more kindly upon a, a project that had come through an agent um, because you kind of trust that agent or whatever in the way that having worked at a TV company before a while ago you might find yourself looking more kind upon something that came through a well-known production company you know sort of right on your desk um or, or do you genuinely sort of go it's it's just the idea this is a fantastic idea i mean what why that were two questions really within with, with uh, Karen? You mind answering that. um i mean yes i i would largely advise authors to get an agent because they I think agents look after your career more closely than anybody else and they know stuff about the industry that you won't necessarily know, particularly when it comes down to contractual negotiations. They're there to look after you, they can give you editorial feedback before you go out um, and as publishers we know that that's the kind of filtering process so that there's, you know, there's, the, there's a quality that's coming through. But that, I mean that's not an exclusive case. So. 
Now, I've written in the past, my first novel was published many years ago by Puffin, and I was unagented at the time, so that can work as well. But, but as a general rule, I would advise getting an agent. And if you can't, because an agent doesn't want to take you on because they've got enough, they're oversupplied, this, that and the other, what do you do? Stop writing? No, I would never, I would never encourage a creative to stop writing, That no. was a joke, sorry. I, <laughs> um, I don't know what you do. I, I think it might mean that it's not the right yeah, project. Um, there's a lot of agents out there. They're not all going to be full. Um, and I think that if you're really struggling to to find someone who's going to champion that project for you, it might be that it's just not the right time for that book and you need to have a think about whether there's something else you could pursue um, that would get a stronger backing, potentially. It's not a, you know, not as black and white as that, and, and it's not to say that, that if you can't get an agent, your project isn't going to work, but I think it would be an indication that you need to think carefully about whether it is the right time for that one. Richard, were you going to say something? I mean, I think, no, I think absolutely the same. I mean, I think, you know, another side from the the agent side I mean I think from creators so the big advantage is they will know they will know all of the publishers and they will know the right people in those publishers to give that to um, whereas if you're you know if you're trying to do it yourself you might you might you know bump into one of us here or something like that or at an event but you're then not going to have that access to to everybody and that's I mean so I think that's probably that's one of the really big advantages and again the contractual stuff and I think that's the point you want somebody that's going to look after you and and develop you so I think that's definitely the best way to go but we you know we do occasionally publish from things that don't have agents but I would say that's a rarity as opposed to a as opposed to the norm just I mean just kind of in terms of sort of pick Richard's point know the right sort of editor how many editors are there and we'll keep it outside of picture books just outside of picture books and therefore above that how many editors are there in Hachette who potentially could be picking up on something that was say young fiction um, ballpark figure just out of interest. Ballpark figure, maybe about twenty commissioning editors. Right. So the world of TV, there's only one guy or one girl, etc., etc. It's a very simple process of knowing who to pitch to. I.e., and if we're talking about there are five publishers, big publishers, six publishers, and there's twenty there, that's over a hundred people who you could potentially actually be picking the wrong person to even get to. What it feels like there's a lot of choice. Actually, there's finding the right one is where someone like Claire comes in because it's their job to know which one of those 100 people or the, which one of the, the 10 of those you know, other people to go to. Yeah, because it might not be just one. It might be that there are five people who are all desperate to publish your book and, and actually in that case you would want them all to be convincing you that they're going to do the best job. And so, so is that called an auction? <laughs> it is, yes. Convincing you via money that they will do the best job. How politely put. There's a hand waving at the back. Miss Kane. Hi. Um, you're doing a great job of selling Claire's services, but Claire, can you tell us a little bit about what you're actually going to take um, to represent this author yep. or this property? Or Claire's representing how, the agenting community. We did have other agents. <laughs> that's, what they that's a really straightforward question. It's just 15% commission, um, and that's industry-wide, so it's not not a, a, um, a complicated one. Um, it, you, you take 15% from the contract that you negotiate, and that's for the lifetime of that contract. Do you have any fees? No. There you go. No fees. Well, distribution needs to um, learn from that. <laughs> um, question lady in the middle. Hi, I'm Tiffany from Super Awesome. Hi, Hi Claire. How Hi, are Claire. you? <laughs> um, I was wondering whether um, 
Well, with lots of um, books being commissioned from non-traditional places, like now with YouTubers and um, kind of, I don't know, Instagram stars and things like that, getting book deals, um, how do you find, Claire, that your role is changing or adapting? And also, um, Karen, how is it? Is it difficult if you're having to work with people like Gleam, who maybe aren't used to kind of going through that publishing process like Claire, um, a book agent, would be? I think... Um at the moment, my role hasn't changed, but that's part of the reason why I was interested in coming here, because I think that it is probably time that, that it did start to change. But up until now, my role has been very traditional and straightforward in that I spot talented authors and sell them to publishers, and, and it's really all about that writing talent. Um, but I think when you look at the, the books that are selling in huge numbers, it's often not purely the writing itself or the, the talent of the author that is creating that success. There's a brand or a concept behind it, like Zoella or um, any of the other um, Alfie Days, even John Green. It's, it's brilliant writing, but it's combined with a very, very strong brand that he built online. Um, and I think that, that there is room for an agent in that equation, that there are talented people whose talent isn't necessarily writing and who aren't perhaps getting the deals that they could were someone who knows the publishing industry involved in that process there. And I haven't had the privilege to work with Gleam yet, but I, I know Penguin has some, maybe we can pass it over yeah. to Richard. And, I mean, my, my instinct is that uh, what you're bringing to that as a publisher is, is your expertise and, and you just, you're guiding them through that process a bit more than you may do if you were working with a traditional literary agent. I don't know if you've got... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's 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 interesting where that there's the sort of the explosion of YouTubers and vloggers and, and and what and what that's done and sort of how that's changed content and where the content is coming from and 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 that space. So I think I think there's obviously there's people moving into that space and people agenting or, or looking after things in that space that wouldn't necessarily have the the um, grounding in publishing. But I think that that's that's for the partly for the publisher to guide but for them you know that's how they're going to pick up that experience is by doing it and, and, and getting make sure they've got the right it's for them to make sure they've got the right people or they make the right partnerships with people that can give them the, the right advice to make sure that, that their talent is getting deals that they that they should be getting okay we're getting close towards um, uh, the end of the session we'll have time for some uh, our last few questions um, we use the word or the words have been mentioned a couple of times um, of what a, of a packager and I'm not sure how many people in the room know what a packager is, so we're going to explore that. Karen, you used to work for a company called Working Partners, who are a packager. Can you describe sort of what role and what function they play within sort of the publishing industry? Because I'm intrigued that it's it's quite close to what a producer does in terms of the way that they get their content away. Can you enlighten us? I can. Um, so Working Partners package children's commercial series fiction, and what that means is that they have a team of about 15 editors all working in-house who exclusively brainstorm and storyline concepts um, and then commission authors to write full manuscripts to their storylines. Um, and those series are sold to publishers around the world. What that means is that if, if a publisher um, wants to get a series out very quickly um, and publish many books a year, so for example, I don't know if any of you know Beast Quest or Rainbow Magic or Animal Ark or any of these big children's series, um, you have a team who can put that through very slickly 
um, and that makes it much easier for the publisher to concentrate their energies on things like publicity and marketing and, and positioning of the series. Um, Working Partners owns the IP in those concepts so they can then sell internationally um, and that's roughly how it works. Here's a harsh question. Um, is there a certain snobbery that actually sort of packages are sort of somehow lower down the creative food chain because of the way that they approach the content? Yes and <laughs> And those snobs are wrong. <laughs> I feel very, very strongly about this creative snobbery around packaging because who decided that a single individual working in their spare bedroom on a manuscript alone for a year is in some way creatively superior to a team of talented editors brainstorming, storylining and engaging with equally talented authors to get manuscripts out there? I mean, it's, it's just not true. Um, and so, yes, there is snobbery and it's foolish. Excellent, because it, uh, it feels like the packaging model is close to the, sort of the, the hypothetical thing that we're talking about as to where ideas come from and move into sort of like the world of sort of like publishing. That actually, um, there's a model that does exist, but it's I'm intrigued as to sort of whether the reaction to sort of like packages as that kind of snobbery automatically would get transferred to any of the non-authors in this room because actually there's less glory actually in a sort of a package product that there is in the sort of the high art of the, the single novel or the glorious picture book. Yeah. Uh, Claire wants to speak? Yeah. No, <laughs> I was just going to say, but from my perspective, I don't, I don't think there is that snobbery from anyone involved in the children's side, is there? Mm. It's perhaps more um, adult publishers, potentially, but you would know more than me. Um, yeah, and, and that, to be fair, I think that snobbery is not the same as it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago, where I think most people could see that the face of publishing is changing and that collaboration is a really big part of the industry now. Richard, any thoughts on packages and that model and um, uh, its yeah, place? I mean, I've, I've never personally worked with, um, with, with any packages side, from, from that side, but I mean, I, yeah, I think to, I don't, the model works. I mean, working partners are incredibly successful. They've created, they've created series, that I, I can't remember the numbers that, that Beast Quest and Real Magic have sold, million, but I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's that number. So, I mean, I think if you're selling that amount of books and now that amount of kids are buying into those series and repeat buying, you're doing something right. So, that, you, you know, there's, there's, they're creating stories that people want to engage with. How they're created, I don't, is, is not important to the kid. The kid does not care. Um, at all, how that how that's been created? They just want they want that story, and if they love it, they want the next one. So I, I think that there's maybe some of that snobbery is either public or retail or whatever related, but I, it's not it's not consumer related. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but from your sort of perception, is I can't imagine in, a, in you know sort of the world that I'm more connected into, sort of television, if that you were part of a company that had managed to shift 10 million units of something, mm. etc., that actually there might be um, sort of, you'd feel sort of, that you were somehow a sort of a second, you know, sort of, you were lower down the tree. And I was wondering, is there an issue that actually, again, the commercial side of making money out of kids' books, again, it's not something that publishers actually want to openly embrace. The fact that um, they are about making money, but sort of <laughs> openly stating that, oh my God, yes, we love Beast Quest, da 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 that actually there's a sort of, there's some sort of conflict in terms of the industry? Or is that not fair? No, I, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, we are, we are commercial entities. We have to we're not charities we have to you know we're there to make money and without that we're there to make revenue but also their profit is is, is incredibly important for, for publishers because profit's what sustains us and allows us to you know allow, you know you, you want to have a mix of things and a profit is, it sustains you so if you've got really profitable stuff that then allows you to take more risks on stuff that is 
more literary or, or more difficult to sell or a bit harder to, to get your head round. And I think as a publisher, you always want to have a, have a mix of things, things that you know are going to be really commercial and successful in some ways, but also you, you desperately want to have things that are going to win literary awards and, and, and develop that way. And I think we're very, you know, we're very, uh, we want to, you know, we're there to make money. Um, you know, obviously not, not the only thing we're there to do, we're there to give voices to authors and, and create, but we have to make money because if we stop, if we stop making money, then nobody's going to be, you, you no one will be publishing books because we'll have to close. Sure. Questions, we've got time for a couple more. If there are, yep, gentleman in the middle with the microphone. Hi, my name's Bobby Tanya from Dubbit, uh, a game studio. Is that 15% uh, gross or 15% net revenue? And if it's net revenue, whose balance sheet are you looking at? <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's fifteen percent gross on UK contracts, and then it varies for um, film and translation, but not wildly. Um, so yeah, just fifteen percent of of whatever the author's making off their their UK publishing contract. If we've negotiated it, there's a clause um, bringing us in as a third party. Cool, thank you. Gentleman in the middle. Hi, uh, David Heslop from CITV, and. Uh, also, another one of those first-time authors that miraculously seems to be springing up in this session. <laughs> uh, just, uh, just out of interest, really, uh, um, I, I suppose for, for Karen more than anyone else. But they, wh when they do, when you have these these packages, and um, where do you kind of get the writers for those? Are they established writers? Are they already on your books? Are they industry veterans or newbies or what? Um, it tends to come from two pools, one of which is people at the start of their career who may or may not have been published and, and are still slightly on a learning curve. And, and So Working Partners has a website and there's, there's a form that you can fill in as an author if you're interested in working with them. And the advantage of that is that because we're very editorially involved, it can become a great learning curve for, for novice authors. And the other big pool of people that we work with maybe more established authors who are really prolific and they just can't stop writing and they just need something to do in between their own novels. Um, so it's a bit of both. Cool, thanks. Gentlemen. Um, hi, Will, I'm a storyboard artist. Um, so um, the, the only missing bit for me is, is uh, how do I find the right agent? Um, I've seen there's more than one. <laughs> um, it, the route has kind of changed recently. It used to be the Writers and Artists yearbook was this um, bible of addresses and, and information and you would go through it seeking out the agents that seemed like a good fit and contact them by post with your, your submission. Um, but as you can imagine, everything's moved online in the last few years and, and you could still um, pursue that same kind of route where you're um, going through people's websites and, and emailing everyone who you think looks relevant. But actually there's a, another strand where most... Um, most agents of a younger generation who are really actively seeking new clients are on Twitter and, and um, other social media and so you can I think it's probably much easier to get a sense of their personality and their taste if you um, if you're able to to look into that side of things Okay, thank you. I'm afraid we are out of time. I have a flashing red light uh, Please give your thanks to our three panellists, please to Richard, Karen <laughs>